let's continue. So if you can make your way back in and you can find your seats, we're going to continue as our kids have made their way to Christ Central Kids in their various locations. The rest of us can come back in, and if you want to find your seat, and if you have your Bible with you, you can open to the Old Testament book of Esther, and we're going to pick up the story there. And just before we do that, first of all, let me introduce myself. My name's Joe Crummy. I'm one of the leaders here of Christ Central, and last week, I wasn't here. A few of us were down in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and as I shared in our church email, and as I said at our church family meeting last week, there's a group of Christians meeting in Wolfville that has asked for our help, and they're in the early days of just gathering and seeking to know what God wants to do with them, and really looking for some help in getting started, and so Kevin, Gary, and I were able to be down there last weekend. We had an excellent um, weekend with them, and we were pleasantly surprised at how God just really gave us a heart for each other and unity and being able to teach into different things and pray together and worship together. And so we're continuing to pray for next steps regarding that, but it was exciting. And so thanks for all your prayers for that. Also just want to welcome everyone, especially if you're uh, new here this morning. And at our welcome team and our welcome table, we've got a connect card that you can fill out. And we'd love to be able to follow up with you um, from today's visit and how we might be able to connect you and serve you uh, via our small groups or things like Alpha. Uh, so please put down your phone number or your email, and we'd love to be able to connect more with you. And if you're here because you're at our Brian Houston uh, concerts Friday night or Saturday night, welcome. And just to say a big thank you for everyone who helped uh, with that. We had a great night last night. We had a great night Friday night, a great night last night. We sold out of tickets last night, so that was a good um, sign. We were recycling tickets last night, so we had to put out some extra chairs. We had a great time together, and Brian served us so well. We had just a really fun time, so thanks to everyone who helped out with that. Well, Brent started us off last week uh, on this new series from the book of Esther about the entitled The Invisible God Reigns, and today we're going to take a look at chapter one and into chapter two, and I'm going to have Gary come here in a minute and read uh, chapter one out to us, and as uh, Brent emphasized last week, this whole overarching theme of Esther is this, is that God reigns, and we're going to dive into that more specifically, looking at how God reigns even over the kings and leaders of this earth, and so we're going to take a look at that um, using Esther chapter one as the platform for that, and so I'm going to ask Gary to come, and he's going to read Esther chapter one just into chapter two for us, so we can follow along with him. All right, I'm reading out of the NIV. So Esther chapter 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princess, and the nobles of the provinces were present. Mm -hmm. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. 
Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a, a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Agbatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring, him bef uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king be, uh, became furious and burned with anger, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice. He spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king: Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mechmucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mechmucan replied to the presence of the king and nobles. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but all against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. That This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mechmucan proposed. Chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let all beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Great. Thanks, Gary. Quite a long passage, so we want to make sure, Brent kind of did an overview last week, but we want to make sure we uh, read out the whole passage from chapter 1. So, we could almost begin Esther with like this, once upon a time. It's a great story, fascinating, and some humor thrown in there as well, and it's a familiar story even for us today, because it starts with this whole thing of a rich, powerful king. 
And as Brent pointed out last week, the author goes into great detail to describe the riches and the power and the wealth and the excesses of this king. So King Xerxes, he ruled over 127 provinces, so we want to make sure we put the high number in there. He reigned as a king from his royal throne. He had a capital city in Susa. He had a kingdom, and as it says in verse 4, that was full of wealth and splendor and the glory of his majesty. He had a palace where the couches were made of gold and silver. The mosaic pavement was uh, made of fine stones. In the garden, there were hangings of white and purple material and silver rings and marble pillars. And he gave an invitation, 180 days, to his military leaders, princes, and nobles. And then at the end of that, he gave a banquet for everyone, from the least to the greatest. And there was wine, and there was no two goblets that were the same, because they were all made different out of gold. And he gave this great command, you can drink however you want. And that is how the author begins to describe this king. And on top of that, the queen throws a party for all the women as well. And so we have this whole thing written to demonstrate the wealth and the prosperity and the power of this earthly king. Now what's fascinating is the author writes this probably years later after King Xerxes has uh, come into power and gone into power. And we know, and Brent went through some of the history last week, that if you go through your history, uh, this banquet was held after they defeated the Babylonians, but before they tried to attack Greece, and so everything is looking pretty fine here, and part of the reason they believe he's throwing this party is to show how uh, much power he has, and as he signs people up to go to Greece to uh, take over uh, the Greeks, he's saying, whoever comes with me, you're going to party like this, and I just want to prove to you that I can back up what I'm saying. And as we know, and after the writers believe in chapter 2, there's a period of time that's gone by where they went for three or four years to Greece, they got soundly defeated, and they've come back. And chapter 2 starts with him coming back sad and lonely because he's been off to war, and he comes back and he's like, oh yeah, I don't even have a queen to come back to. And he remembers what he did to Vashti. But the writer doesn't start with him coming as a defeated king the writer starts with how great and powerful this king is. And if you were a Jewish person at that point, you could kind of be wondering, how does this compare to God and God's kingdom and the people of God? So it's a study in contrast that the author presents. Because elsewhere in the Bible, nowhere else is all of this described in detail about an earthly king except for when it's talking about God and God's purposes and plans. And so in the Old Testament, we see this. And so you have to realize the imagery that would be given to the Jewish people contrasting rich, powerful, pagan king and them being God's people and the situation that they were living in in captivity. And so let's just go through a comparison. In the Old Testament, God is proclaimed as king over all the earth. He's made everything. We see this, that Jerusalem is God's city. It's the city of David, the king. And in Jerusalem, what do we have? We have a palace. We have the temple that Solomon made for God, and he made it with riches and with gold and with fine stones. And on the inside of the temple, what do we find? We see it laden with this whole image of, from the Garden of Eden on the inside. And there's nowhere else except for the Garden of Eden. It goes into great detail as we read here in Esther about a garden in the Bible. And if you read Exodus 25 to 27, 
and we can read about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the table, the lampstand, the altar, and then in the, to the temple in 1 Kings 7, how the temple was built in great detail. In the Old Testament, we have this. We have an invitation for everyone to come to God to worship Him, certainly for His people, but even within the Jewish people, if you go through, there were provisions made for even people who weren't Jewish to come and be car- become part of the people of God. And if you know Jewish history, you can see all throughout their year, their banquets and feasts and celebrations to remember who God is, what God has done, and to enjoy God together. So if you begin to get some of the background, you realize the contrast between Xerxes as king and his kingdom in Persia at that time and the people of God, who it seemed on the surface and by perception had no king. Their kings had been defeated. They had no capital city. Jerusalem had been destroyed. They had no palace, no temple, because the temple had been destroyed. They were poor in slavery while their enemies partied and ruled. And the question I think they could ask, and one that we might be asking as well in all of this, where is God? It's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Where is God? It's not fair. God's people are suffering. Where is God? Is he silent? And so we have this whole thing of Esther being written, of looking at it from two points of view. There's the whole perception that God is defeated, and earthly kings are succeeding. But the reality is this, and this is what we want to focus in on in Esther chapter 1. Because Esther chapter 1, there's all kinds of things we could take a look at. And if you read and Brett and I have gone through, and boy, we're looked at all kinds of different commentaries and different things, and there's lots of things you can get out of Esther, but we want to focus in on one thing. And the reality is, and this is how the author portrays, if you were a Jewish person at that time, you could think that Xerxes was so powerful and so wealthy and military might and conquering everything and rich and excessive, there's no way that we could ever compare to him. But the author portrays it this way, isn't it? The reality is, is Xerxes isn't all that smart or powerful. So let's just take a look quickly at his life. First of all, he's drunk all the time. And in his day, when he brought the council together to discuss things, they believed in getting drunk, and that's how they would get deeper and have more revelation into things. You can, we can chuckle, I don't think we're that far off in our society either. (laughs) We just add some more drugs to the mix and think we'll become even more enlightened when we do certain things. So the reality was that drunkenness led him to do some pretty rash and irrational things. So he made a very stupid decision to bring his wife out as eye candy to all his drunken mates. And many commentators believe The order could have been just for her to wear the crown and nothing else, and good for Vashti for knowing that her drunken husband was only wanting her to be showed off. She said no. Now, we could do a whole thing on that. We could do a whole thing on drunkenness. Those are all things we could, secondary things, but we're going to keep moving. We see that he's very, I'm going to say it, and for my kids who think stupid is a swear word, please forgive me. He was very stupid. So he takes a marital issue, which he himself got himself into trouble, and he makes it a national issue. So instead of dealing with Vashti one-on-one, 
He brings all his counselors together, and I mean, how crazy is this? They're like, okay, we can't let word out that Vashti disobeyed you because it's going to cause, you know, upheaval in marriages and society, so we got to keep it hidden. So what do we do? We send out a decree into every part of the country and every language saying what she's done. So we want to keep it secret because the women will overturn the men, and we can't have that happen, so what do we do? We will tell everybody about what happened, and then we'll decree, we'll put in a legislation about how women should obey men. Not a very smart idea. <laughs> and what happens? Vashti's removed. As, he's, as I said before, in chapter 2, we pick it up. He comes back home from war, and many commentators, I believe, he went into a depression because not only he had lost the war, he came back, he's got no wife. And we pick it up in chapter 2, and all the counselors are like, we got to do something, the king is so depressed. And they enact a whole plan. And the writer's saying, if you're picturing Xerxes as the model guy, that that's who you want to be like. They're saying, if you think he's the one in control, he might not be in as much control as you think he is. And what happens is, God, who is really in control, uses all this to open a door for Esther, and we're going to pick it up over the next few weeks. I'm not going to jump ahead. There's a lot of to-be-continued, and if you're wondering, Joe didn't answer this and this thing, well, we're doing a series, so I can't give you all the things in one message. The point is this. It looks like Xerxes is in control when actually he's not really in control. And it's a lesson for us that for people, and I'm quite wired to want to be in control, you quickly realize if you're around people, if you have kids, if you're employees, anything, you quickly realize you're not as much in control as you think you are. And the point is, God is in control. And God uses this foolishness of Xerxes to actually open a door, and God is behind it, and he's acting, and he's orchestrating things to fall into their proper place at the proper time for greater purpose. And what does this remind us of? This reminds us of two different kingdoms, Persia and God's kingdom. And if we look in the New Testament, what do we see? We see a lot of similarities between Jesus and the book of Esther. So let me just take us through a few things. The hundreds of years later, Jesus, the Son of God, is born into the shadow of the mighty Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire has a similar kind of feel to it as the book of Esther, that there's wealth and power and prestige and indulgent excesses, just as there was Persia and Xerxes. And in Luke's gospel, if we fast forward to the New Testament, the birth of Jesus contains many of the same themes as Esther does in chapter 1. It's significant that Luke starts his account with a notice of who the ruling powers are. And I know I'm skipping ahead, so come back at Christmas time as well. But let's take a look at Luke chapter 2, a familiar passage that we don't always read about outside of the month of December. Luke says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So we have a lot of similarities, don't we? We have a king on the throne who ruled over, at that point, the known world, Caesar Augustus. And he gave a decree to the entire world. We have an empire that demanded loyalty 
and worship, and Jesus was born into being under the oppression of the Romans and the Jewish people longing for freedom. A lot of similarities. We can go through all those different things. And we see this, that Jesus came, and as he grew up, he began to teach on a kingdom that was the kingdom of God. And if we go through Jesus' birth, we begin to see the writers establishing that Jesus is really king. So let's go through a few things. We see this, that Jesus is from the house of and the family of David. So they went to Bethlehem, which was a royal city. And after the birth of Jesus, an angel appears and announces, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 11. Now, if you were living in the Roman Empire, it was not a wise thing to say anybody else but Caesar was Lord and Savior. Because again, in their context, they viewed Caesar as divine. They viewed Caesar as Savior of the world, of Lord and King of the world. And the angel declares a very counter-imperial statement that unto you born this day in the city of David, a Savior who was Christ the Lord. And three times David is referenced, highlighting that Jesus is born from a royal line. He's born in a royal city. And this baby lying in a manger is Savior and Lord for all people. Because the angel also announced this, that this is good news for all people. For all people on planet Earth, Jesus is Savior. And John the Baptist came saying, pointing to Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is coming as king of the world. And in Jesus' life, quickly, where did he finally end up? He ended up in Jerusalem, the capital city. And Jesus would go to the temple, and he said a very fascinating thing in John 7, which I'll just give you some tidbits, but to prove this whole thing of Jesus being king in the kingdom of God. At the temple, which was the center of the universe for Jewish people, and the Holy of Holies there, God's presence, Jesus came to the temple, and Jesus said some radical things. And one of the things he said was, if anyone's thirsty, John 7, come to me. Which was a powerful thing that Jesus is the temple. He is the word of God. He is God's presence on planet earth. Jesus also went to a garden. Instead of it being a party and a banquet, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. And instead of partying, instead of being full of excesses, Jesus fought with the devil and cried out to God. And there he fought the greatest battle before he went to the cross. I was saying, God, if you can do it some other way, go ahead and do it, but not my will, but thine. And he was obedient to his Father's will, and he persevered in going to the cross. Jesus gave an invitation. He said to his followers, come and follow me. And as we see at the Last Supper, Jesus gave a banquet. But again, it wasn't a party. It was a banquet that he knew he was going to be betrayed, that he took the servant role, that he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is going to be my body that's going to be broken for you. And he took the cup, instead of it being full of drunkenness, Jesus took the cup and said, this is going to be representing my blood, which is going to be shed for you. 
all the way through Esther, there's a contrast. Earthly kings, earthly powers, earthly wealth, earthly authority, contrasting against God, Old Testament, Jesus, and his kingdom. Because Jesus came, and he had a radically different kingdom, didn't he? Jesus had what many theologians call the invisible kingdom. Jesus was Savior, the Messiah, and he was Lord, but he came in a very unexpected way. He was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. And instead of overthrowing the Roman Empire, he lived mostly faithfully in it. And of course, he challenged it, but he didn't pick fights with it. And Jesus lived a life full of service and of love, submission to his Father's will, respect, justice, forgiveness, healing, mercy, and sacrifice, which is all very countercultural to riches, excesses, and abuse of authority. Jesus even said, look, I, can't, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And he says, I've come to be a servant. And Jesus was so countercultural, the empire couldn't take it, and they crushed him by nailing him to a cross with a cruel sign over his head, mocking his claim to be the true king and treating him as if he was the fool. And Luke 23, 38 says, they wrote and they put above him on the cross, this is the king of the Jews. And if we stop there for a minute, I think Jesus' disciples and the people of his day felt a lot like the Jewish people in Persia as Xerxes is given this party. God, where are you? Because the perception is God is defeated and the kings of this earth are ruling and reigning. And this is the cliffhanger in the Bible. But for Jesus, things change. The resurrection three days later demonstrated that the Roman Empire would not have the last word, nor any empire after that, that God's kingdom with Christ as king would bring all the empires of the world, whether the Persians, Romans, or any other, to their knees. And one day the voices in heaven will declare, as we read about in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the question is, but what about in the meantime? So if God is really reigning, what do we do in the meantime? And folks, we don't have to go very far to see that throughout history, there's always been Persia and an Esther. There's been a Roman Empire and the early Christians that has been full of conflict and injustice, abuse, and wars. And today, we don't have to go very far. We have people even within our own church that know that there's wars and injustice going on today. And of course, in our news, everything that's going on in Syria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Russia and Ukraine, and I can go on, Korea, China, America, Canada, New Brunswick, Fredericton, our neighborhoods. But throughout history and even today, it seems and it appears that the world is ruled by the rich, the powerful, the connected, those who are able politically to pull all the strings by the military. And just like the Jews in Persia, the early Christians in Rome, 
We often see the kings of the earth do as they wish. So we have dictators, we have tyrants, we have military powers, political geniuses, rich business people who seem to control and party and for everyone else wondering where in the world is God. And many times if we're honest, no matter what circumstance we come through, and again, if we get to know some of the people in our church who have lived through many of these things coming from the DRC, from Korea, from different parts of the world that have experienced what it is to be kicked out of home, to have friends and family slaughtered, to live on the run and in fear. This isn't just a Bible story, it's reality, it's life. And if we're honest, we have to say, is God really in control? And in our hearts, we have to ask, can we really trust God? And the Bible allows us to be honest to ask those questions. And for some of you taking Alpha this over the next few weeks, those are maybe some of the questions you're going to ask. And Alpha is a great place to be able to ask questions about suffering and injustice. And if God's really real, why do bad things happen? It's a safe place to be able to ask those questions. And today, as in Esther's day, as in Jesus' day, in our day, God and the Bible always tells us that we are to have an eternal perspective. I'm not going to go into as much detail because Brett just talked about this two weeks ago. But as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, man, I'm just repeating Brent's last two messages. But sometimes God really wants us to hear something over and over again. And the Bible says this, we're to have an eternal view. The author of Esther encourages us to see that our world, instead of seeing it through the eyes of just what we see and perceive in front of us, we're to look with eyes of faith in God and to understand that things like money, power, status, military backing can never bring us true life. All these things will pass away. They're merely banquets that last for a moment, but then they are gone. Versus this, what John wrote in 1 John 2.17. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And in Jesus' day, they asked him, God, what is God's will? And you read about it in the book of John. What is God's will? It's a good question, isn't it? What is God's will? Jesus said this, the will of God is to believe in the one he has sent. That's Jesus. So if you're wondering what the will of God here is this morning, the starting point is always to believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe in the one whom God has sent. That is the will of God. And the Bible says if you do that, you will live forever. We need to see our lives in the world we live in from an eternal perspective, to know that God is always at work, positioning things in the world and in individual lives, even if we can't see it. And Brian Gregory in his book on Esther says this. It's a great quote. It says, behind the scenes, God is orchestrating all things to serve his greater purposes, even when it means that crosses must come before resurrections. And folks, that was the author's message in Esther. So we can do all kinds of secondary things about chapter 1, which aren't necessarily bad, but the overarching theme 
is this, and it's what Paul wrote to the early Christians who were being persecuted, and in the message we need to hear and believe today, that Jesus is the true king of the world, that through his death and his resurrection, he defeated sin and death and the devil, that Jesus has a kingdom that is ever-increasing, and it involves all nations. Let me just read out a few passages to you. Another familiar one from Christmas that sometimes we can lose the meaning. Isaiah spoke about this in chapter 9. He says, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Yes and amen. And Daniel, we read this. Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked. This is Daniel chapter 7. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Folks, Jesus is king, and his kingdom is ever-increasing that Jesus has a temple, and it's not made by men. Revelation 21 says that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, that there'll be a garden, that Eden will be restored, that we will enjoy God's presence, that there's an invitation. If we read Revelation 21 and 22, it says, Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, he said it in John chapter 7 when he was physically on here, earth, he says it in Revelation Come to me, whoever is thirsty, and receive life from me. And in Revelation 19, we read about a great banquet. We read about a great wedding feast, that there'll be a marriage between the lamb and his bride. Folks, that's what we fix our eyes upon. This is what, from the days of the early Christians, 2,000 years later, This is the same message. Folks, we need to be able to preach this message whether we're in Fredericton today or anywhere on planet Earth today. It's the same message even if the circumstances are different. That Jesus is king. That his kingdom is coming more and more. That there's an invitation to come to him. And one day, there'll be a great banquet, the wedding feast. Now in closing... The question is, what's our part in our day and in our time? And briefly, if I can get it, there we go, one more. Just to keep you in suspense. Now hear me, there's lots of other things I can say, but you've got to come back next week and the week after. And the week, I couldn't steal from the other people's messages coming up, okay? My whole thing this morning was to hammer home, we, even today, in North American society, think, or many of us do, that only the wealthy and the rich and the powerful are really the ones that enjoy life and have life 
and the rest of us kind of like, is God there and is? And we need to learn from Esther, hammering home the message. We think wrongly if we think that. And if we think rich people have it all together and everything, we're, we're missing the whole thing. We're to look with God's eyes, God's perspective being about God's kingdom. And a lot of times, God's kingdom looks different from a worldly kingdom. So what do we do? Our part. The very first thing, our part is this. We're to trust Jesus. So in John chapter 14, Jesus was talking to his disciples. They were troubled. Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm leaving. And they were troubled. And they're like, Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you can't come. And they panicked. And Jesus said, well, we're going to come with you. And Jesus said, you've heard it said, trust in God. Now Jesus is saying, trust also in me. So we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. That's why we can sing the songs that we have this morning, because we've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What can I do today? It starts with putting our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, and Alpha is a tool to help explain that in more detail. What else are we supposed to do? We're supposed to persevere so we don't give up on the invisible kingdom of God. Even if we don't see it, even if we see other things happen, appears like kings of this earth are ruling and reigning, we persevere, we don't give up. I'm not going to just go by what I see with my physical eyes. I'm going to trust God. What else do we do? We serve. Folks, God is at work all the time, and he invites us to join him. Folks, God is at work all the time. Can I say it again? God is at work all the time. Even if we don't see it, God is at work all the time. And he invites us. Isn't that great? He invites us to partner with him. We can be a part of God's purposes and plans. And most of that comes through service. It begins in our home. If you're married, you get to serve your spouse. That's part of serving God. That's part of his kingdom. Children, you obey your parents. Parents, don't exasperate your children. We're serving. Employees, work hard because you're not just working for your employer. You're working for God. Employers, don't take advantage of your employees because we all know who your real master is. You're really accountable to God. Everything, Paul says, that you're about, you're doing it for the glory of God because we know our reward is really in heaven. So even if it goes unnoticed here, even if it appears to have no difference, we walk with integrity, we walk with respect, we work hard, we serve because we're doing it for the glory of God. What else do we do? We pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name, hallowed be your name. And he goes on to say this, pray asking for the kingdom to come. We're praying for heaven to come to earth. So in every situation, we're praying for the kingdom of God to come. In world events, God, let your kingdom come. Let it be one of order and peace. Let it be one of salvation and healing and deliverance. Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. In our schools, let your kingdom come. In our workplace, let your kingdom come. In our families, let your kingdom come. We want heaven on earth. We walk by faith that we believe God 
in his promises. We live by faith. And folks, all these things lead to action. Now, I've heard it said, and a lot of times we can struggle with things like the sovereignty of God, God's providence. If God knows the future, then what do we do today? Can I say this in the book of Esther and throughout God's word? And we're going to pick it up in the next few weeks. We believe God is sovereign, that God rules and reigns, that God's working things out. But when the situation arised, as we're going to see the other characters in Esther, they acted. They didn't just say, well, God's sovereign and doesn't really, I don't really have to do anything because if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. They acted. And folks, in this, even though God reigns absolutely, we believe in God's providence, He knows future, He's orchestrating things. As we have revelation, we act. That is our part. So if God prompts you to do something, act on it. You read the Word of God, obey it. It leads to action. We don't want the thought that God rules and reigns, God's going to sort it all out, I can just be passive and sit on the sidelines and watch it all unfold. That's not what we get from the book of Esther. When we see God ruling and reigning and we see his kingdom coming, even though sometimes we don't see it in our day and our time, we still act and we obey and we follow God. In conclusion, we have two choices. We can go with our perceptions and our senses that sometimes says, you know what? The rich rule, military might conquers, and those in authority over us seem to party on the backs of our cruelty, and we can think that God isn't real, and we can give up. Or we can look with eyes of reality and say, God is at work. That there's two kingdoms. There's a worldly kingdom full of power and wealth and excess and abuse, and there's a heavenly kingdom that, as Jesus demonstrated, looks entirely different. And what's our reaction and what's our role here in Canada and in the world? Do we have an eternal view that a day is coming when Jesus is going to put all things right? And in the meantime, we're going to trust Jesus. We're going to serve. We're going to act. We're going to pray. We're going to do the things that we know God has called us to do. I'm going to close with this quote from Greg. He says so succinctly, this is the point of the story. The Persian king is flamboyant, but ultimately out of control. God is subtle, indeed very subtle, but ultimately in control. And as we're going to pick up over the next few weeks, my favorite saying, to be continued in complete control. All right, let me pray, and then I'm going to hand things back over to Brent. Father in heaven, I pray this morning. We got people here from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different circumstances that they're going through. And Father, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit, as we've opened up your word, we pray, Lord Jesus, that your will would be done, that you would draw people to Jesus, that you would put strength into people to keep trusting Jesus, that you would give all of us eyes to see an eternal heavenly perspective. Lord Jesus, we pray today that your kingdom would come on planet earth, 
one that's full of your salvation, your deliverance, your healing, your peace, and your order. And God, we pray, let these things be made known in our day and in our time. For your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.